Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to the show. I'm really glad you could join me this week as we're going to be speaking with Richard Black about mind health. Now, I really enjoyed this reflection from him about looking after our mental health as well as our physical health. I know you're going to enjoy it, and if you do, make sure to check out some of the more than 200 other episodes in the back catalog. And there's plenty more info at theseeds.nz. Now, let's get straight into this interview with Richard. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Richard Black, who's a counselor and director of Mind Health. Thanks for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. The reason that you're here is that my wife went to a seminar, I think about a year ago. She came home and she said, there's this guy, you've got to get him on the podcast. Oh, And wonderful. it was you. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> so it's, I'm really glad that you're um, able to join me today. What we do on Seeds is we find out a bit about a person's background and where they're from and then try to trace what they're doing today and then look for links between those two. Mm -hmm. And in your case, I know you're doing a lot of work with people in counseling, Mm -hmm. and um, I'd really be curious to find out more of of your thoughts about what is it that shapes our personalities and, you know, how do we become who we are? So Mm -hmm. that would be a great topic. But I don't know exactly what we're going to talk about, but I do have my opening question, which is can you go back in time and tell us a little bit about what things were like for you when you were, say, four or five years old. Where were you living? Yeah, wonderful. Well, I was, I was living here in Christchurch. In fact, I'm born and raised um, in, in Canterbury and went away for a number of years. But when I was about four or five, uh, it was probably a turning point in our life. We were living out in uh, Avonhead on Glenhara Avenue. I went to the kindergarten down there. I used to walk myself back and forward. Nowadays, something parents wouldn't even <laughs> dream of doing. And and then we, uh, when I, just when I was turning five, we went to America for about three months when my dad finished off his PhD over there and then came back and resettled in Merivale. And then I went to Elmwood Normal School. Hmm. And do you have memories of, of going, like five years old? Were you? Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. Um, uh, vivid memories of making snow angels. We, we went to Seattle, Washington, and uh, snow angels, we were there around um, Halloween and getting dressed up like, I think I was... Tarzan, and I really wanted to be um, R2-D2. Right. <laughs> and, and getting the largest haul of lollies that I've ever got, because we were living in a complex and there were just so many people around doing this. And and finding little packets of of breakfast cereals that uh, were different colors. They were um, Fruit Loops. Which, Fruit Loops, right. Yeah, yeah, which I'd never come across. And milk that was in cartons rather than in milk bottles. So... Uh-huh. Yeah, a variety of memories, um, and I loved the experience, um, even though it was only for three months. Yeah, it's amazing what sticks out as a child as well, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, I can imagine the haul that you got, because in America at that time, it would have been a big tradition, is mm-hmm. the Halloween trick-or-treating, mm-hmm. as opposed to New Zealand at that time. Oh, totally. You know, so you, I yeah. can imagine a whole bag full, huh? You go to places and people just give you lollies. I mean, we went as a pack, so <laughs> I wasn't by myself, but... But it was great, and I I remember having, like, it felt like the bottom uh, layer of my chest of drawers was completely full of lollies. Now, I have a memory of collecting them. 
I have no memory of eating them. So I don't right. know if <laughs> mum and dad just sort of sneaked them away or something right. like that. But but the the hunting and collecting was wonderful. Yeah, they just mm. disappeared slowly <laughs> over time. <laughs> Either that or my siblings ate them. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So what type of things did you enjoy in your childhood? Did you enjoy things like in the outside, you know, going into the mountains and hiking and trails and that type of thing? Or did you enjoy more, you know, books and reading? Or how would you describe yourself? Yeah, yeah. In many ways, um, it was neither of those. Um, I was diagnosed with dyslexia at at some point, and so reading and books were always foreign to me and always difficult. Uh, Certainly, we were not a physical family, so we were not hiking, we were not trekking. I would... Um, I used to refer to my best friend being, when I was really young, as being the TV set, waiting for that two o'clock time when something decent would come on. Right. But being, be, playing with Lego, playing with cars, going out, seeing my, my friends, being in their world, those were probably a lot more of the, the fun times. Having an experience of fun where we would go to QE2 and go on a Hydra slide or something like that. Mm. Um I did play sports as a child. I was played soccer for um, a lot of my primary school and even into secondary school, and really enjoyed that. Uh, but yeah, we were. I was more of a a headspace, um, entertain yourself kind of guy. Mm. And you mentioned dyslexia. Was that quite early on that that was able to be diagnosed, or was it something later that you found yeah, out? Yeah, it or? was. It was later. I mean. My parents told me later they thought they had three intelligent children and then Richard. Right. (laughs) And I remember I struggled with spelling. I struggled with my um, English. I always didn't quite fit. I was always not advanced enough for one of the the bottom levels of the the class, but I was always too advanced for some remedial reading kind of class. But in maths, I excelled. I seemed to do really well in that. Hmm. And it wasn't until I hit my intermediate age where my parents got confused that Richard, who they didn't necessarily think was necessarily all that intelligent, was hanging out with the scholarship kids. The scholarship kids were my best friends. And so for some reason, Richard could get on. So then they did an IQ test. Then they did some follow-up testing. And they realized, in fact, um, that it was my intelligence was fine. But I had a, 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 well, they probably would have referred to it as a learning disorder back then. But I simply learned differently. Mm. And so I was off the charts on some things and below the charts on others. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating subject because actually, as we're recording this, I'm about to put out an episode with Esther Whitehead who's from the Dyslexia Foundation of New Zealand. Oh, wonderful. And we talk about neurodiversity. Mm. And um, she describes a lot on this topic of different ways of being, different ways of learning. Um, So it's a fascinating topic. I will look forward to listening to that. Yeah, it's it's a really good one. I'm literally going to hit publish after our (laughs) interviews. (laughs) Um, Oh, that's really good. So coming through high school and things, was there an area, you mentioned maths, was that sort of where you lean towards or was there a topic that you enjoyed yeah maths uh, maths I certainly lean towards there was a change for me that happened around what was fifth form which was you know year 11 mm. where I had in fact many people who live in New Ze- in Christchurch will know Joe Bennett and Joe Bennett was my English teacher Hmm. And he gave me a love for English, and I learned to find different ways to engage with English. And then I did my first real uh, public 
speaking speech, which I absolutely loved and got in towards the, the finals in it. And there was something that just turned for me in that. And I, I started to enjoy words and ideas a whole lot more than I had in the past. Hmm. And my maths continued, and then I enjoyed classics, and I enjoyed ancient history, and I enjoyed all of those sorts of things. So, so maths certainly stood out, but then, but then some of these other things uh, began to emerge, and and then excel once I went to university and found that I loved ideas and concepts and and weaving those sorts of things together. Hmm. Oh, that's really good. And you mentioned Joe Bennett, who he's written an articles for years and years now hasn't yep. he in the lots press. of articles lots of books uh, yeah. and uh, yeah so before he was someone he was uh, a teacher right and uh, he certainly had a, a, a strong powerful impact on on my my education and my ability to enjoy English and savor language so I am grateful to him for that yeah what was it about him that what he was able to convey? that love of language yeah i'm always curious i'll let you think well i'm i'm always curious about teachers and the role that they play in their in the lives of students because Mm. somebody like that definitely helps unlock a door you know that may have remained shut Mm. and you just look back and then of course you ask how can we be those people for others Mm. Um, but what was it about him do you think that Really well, made. I certainly think there was the joy for English that stood out, but he's also, or he was certainly back then, quite a dramatic um, man, and so he would communicate in a dramatic way, in an energized way. He would, I remember him breaking apart uh, Lord of the Flies and talking about different components, and and I was able to take those components and and write an essay that was, I remember it being 18 out of 20, which was excellent because I never read the book. <laughs> I just pulled together the ideas that he communicated and was able to weave them to answer the question. Mm-hmm. So there was that. And, and I remember him introducing us to poetry and language. And there was a, um, a short story by Somerset Maughan called The Luncheon, which is this description of food. Uh, there's a, a whole lot more behind it, but there was one description of these fat, juicy asparagus with butter dripping off it that made my, my mouth water. And I knew I hated asparagus, but I loved the mm. way it was described. Mm-hmm. And so it was that way of, of introducing us to English and loving English himself and engaged with it and the energy in it and the encouragement that, that I found uh, incredibly helpful. Mm. Yeah. And so where did you go to university or where did you study after high school? So I went from uh, from high school to Can- University of Canterbury. Uh, I started a bachelor's degree and was going to do psychology. My, my dad's a clinical psychologist and I thought oh, I didn't know of anything else to do. I thought maybe I like sort of the idea of people, so I'd start doing that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I actually stopped doing psychology after the first year and there's a story behind that. But I then ended up finishing my qualification, my BA in finishing it majoring in classics, which I absolutely loved. So I did that. I then went off and did um, theological training and did my Bachelor of Divinity at Laidlaw. Uh, and only uh, about 10 years ago, I went and finished my master's at Massey. Oh, that's good. And what was it you loved about classics? 
Oh, I loved the ancient world. Um, I think I loved the the idea of the swords and shields. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved also the the concepts that uh, that a lot of what we have in our Western world stems from Hellenistic. Um, the Hellenistic world, the, what the Greeks, what the Romans were were thinking, what how they um, their philosophy, their literature, all of that has informed so much. Uh, the battles, the strategy, uh, the ideas, the commerce, great figures of history like Alexander the Great, and just what he was able to do. All of that sort of fascinated me, and and what I loved about that more than history history I, I realized later looking back had a lot to do with the facts and the dates and when things happened and back in ancient history we don't quite know when anything really happened and so it was more about themes and ideas and possibilities and there wasn't necessarily a right answer there were just different answers and so we could explore what these different answers might be and so so that that sort of thing I absolutely enjoyed and loved. Yeah. The amazing thing to me is if it, like if you could go back in a time machine and talk with some of those people, mm. the concepts and the things that they were thinking about mm. are just as relevant today, you know, and we kind of think that we've advanced so far like here we are we're recording using this, you know, microphones and mm. devices and yet at our essence probably the same things that we're thinking about is what they were thinking about. And oh. some of, sometimes the writing as well. Oh. You read it today and you think, wow, they're describing what I'm feeling today. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, there's a classic um, passage where it talks about how the youth of today, we're deeply worried about them and and how they've gone off the rails and they no longer seem to hold to the same kind of values and we're worried about what kind of future that it will bring. Everything that, that seems like someone today could have said, and it was in fact Socrates. So right. uh, it's the, the same kind of angst and issues. Uh, so if you don't know history, you're, you're quite likely going to repeat it. Mm, yeah. And you mentioned um, that your father had been a clinical psychologist. Um, at what point did you... Well, yeah, maybe just describe the next couple of years or or how did you end up doing what you're doing today? So for me, what, what, what happened was, as part of my journey, when I was at university and I was off at a different church meeting and I actually felt like God clearly said to me, stop doing the the psych degree and carry on with classics, which I was excited by. I then carried on and then went into training for ministry, then worked as a church developer alongside churches to help restore them, develop their leadership, their teams, all of those kinds of things. And then I was called into a local church to help revitalize it and get it back on its feet and and was doing that and thought, right, this is me. I'm going to be settled here now for, for many years. And then again, I felt like God flick a switch and say, you're going to stop doing that and you're going to move into the area of of helping people and helping churches in their mental, emotional well-being. And he, I felt like he said, and you'll be good at it, which I thought was very kind of him because <laughs> I didn't have a clue how to, how to do any of this. And so then I stepped out and I retrained and I just went, okay, well, let's give this a go and let's see if there's a need and let's see if there's a need that I can respond to. And what I found was that uh, the need was immense. 
And uh, it didn't take long before I was fully occupied, fully employed by by helping people with their needs. And and that's been now over 10 years. And so it continues. Um, the needs seem to be more and more and more complex. And uh, my ability to help hopefully is also developing and developing teams of people who can then help others. So... So that's been sort of the pathway. Yeah. And the retraining that you did, was that in counseling specifically or what was it? Yeah. That was, so that, that's where I did my master's in counseling through okay. Massey. And uh, so that uh, I had my, my people skills already. I had my pastoral skills, but this was enabling me to grow my ability in, in counseling and helping people to overcome certain issues, break through, break free, Mm -hmm. uh, find the strength that they already had, those kinds of things. Mm. So what is it that makes a good counselor? What were the the nuts, you know, the the golden nuggets from that sort of training? Because I'm curious always with the podcast that there are people listening Mm. who have people around them who have things that maybe they could or should share but they don't know the mechanisms to ask questions or unlock those. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, as to what makes a good counsellor yeah. and, and what I enjoyed from the training? Yeah. It, I think for each person, if you ask them, what would you want in a counsellor, they all want something different or they would all name different things. But, I mean, generally speaking, a person who's able to empathise and create a safe space where... Anything you share, you'll find that there is absolutely no judgment here. There is only acceptance of you. Mm. I think you also need someone who has an inquisitive uh, mind to be able to journey with someone else, to explore what has been going on in you, with you, that's led you to be the way that you are currently. And then also has the ability to help uh, a client to discover the resources they have or to discover insights that perhaps they hadn't realized that can help give them the strength they need to overcome issues, to find release and relief. And so those uh, those abilities of, of empathy as well as in, um, being inquisitive and, and being able to help people come towards places of insights, I think those three things would be essential for any good counsellor. Yeah, that's good. I think a big part of it is being interested in the person as Mm, well, isn't it? And being curious and wanting Mm. to hear their perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people ask me, doesn't it hard for you or boring for you if you're sitting listening to people's problems is the way they'll describe it. Right. Whereas I'm, I'm fascinated by the person. I have a heart to help them move beyond what's got them caught. And also that there is a uh, a desire to unlock this this puzzle uh, if if I didn't have that then yeah I would I'd probably find what I do a bit of a struggle but the the ability to unlock a puzzle and help a person gain greater strength is just wonderful yeah and your initiative is called mind health um, I'm curious to understand that term and why you chose it But I'm also curious to understand, because as we know, in New Zealand, there is high depression rates. Mm. There are, you know, the suicide numbers and things like it's shocking Mm. when you think Mm. about the beauty and the place that we live. Um, But I'm just curious, can you just frame that 
name and how you chose it. And what do you mean by mind health? Yeah, yeah. One of the things that uh, I say to different people is one of our difficulties in this area around mental, emotional well-being and health is in one part is we haven't actually had the language. So I'll say, you know, oftentimes we'll talk about who would come to a counselor and you might say someone who's struggling with anxiety or depression or marriage breaking down. I say, yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's in many ways what we call the bottom of the cliff. But I said, but what do you call the top of the cliff? We don't have a name for that area Mm. because if we refer to it as mental health, The problem is in our country, mental health, uh, that term is just synonymous with mental illness. And so as a result, we're simply just talking more and more around mental illness. But I said, because there hasn't been the language, we haven't been able to see it. It's hard to see what you cannot name if you don't have a name for something. So I said, so I've made some up. And the top of the cliff I refer to as mind health. And also with my study and with what I looked at, uh, I... I see that there are five key principles, five key areas that when we put them into practice, if we're at the bottom of the cliff, we start to heal up. Mm. If we're at the top of the cliff, well, now we start to thrive. And and so that's where mind health came from as a term. And it's sort of just cottoned on and it seems to be understandable and recognizable to many people. So we've kept it. Yeah. Oh, that's good. No, I like it because we can easily understand if somebody talks about the physical body, you know, and for example, diet, what you eat, you know, it affects how your body does and exercise and sleep and these things. But I think there is a a separation between, you know, the physical and the mental. Mm. And, And that's probably not a healthy thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and one of the other difficulties that I find is that not only have we not had the language, but we often think about mental health in a binary kind of way. You know, you're either mentally healthy or you're not. You're mentally ill, mm. as if you're one or the other. And and when we see it in that way, we, we actually limit conversation. So I'll often say to people, you know, if, if you were to look at me and ask me, Richard, are you physically well? Or are you sick? Do you need a doctor? I can go, well, you know, I'm, I'm well. Thanks for asking. And the conversation stops. But if you were to ask me, Richard, are you physically fit? I'd go, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, somewhat. If you said, you know, Richard, are you operating at your peak physical ability? Are you physically fit? Do you have all the nutrients, um, uh, rest, minerals, exercise that you need in order to thrive physically? I'd go, <laughs> You know, just don't look too closely or as much as the next person, somewhat. And when we have that kind of language around fitness, Mm. we realize that our well-being, our physical well-being isn't a binary kind of thing. You either are or you're not. It's, It's a continuum. And one of the things that I want to help people understand is the same is true with your own mental, emotional well-being. It's not that you're mentally, emotionally well or not. I don't think that's helpful. I think when we think about the language of fitness, when we think about the language of a continuum and realizing we're all on the continuum somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I'll say to people that if you look at your own life and there's nothing that you can identify that needs to be worked on in your own well-being, that's not because you're really healthy. That's because you're in denial. (laughs) And so our ability to name our growth edges is one of those indications of actual mental and emotional well-being. Mm. 
And I guess I like the way you phrased it, that people view it as a binary. You're mm. either okay or not okay. And it's about realizing that there is a spectrum and, a, a, you know, there's shades, right? And totally. so there's a moving. And also, I guess that, that things change, you know, even yeah. day to day or week to week or yeah. month to month. Absolutely. I mean, you can you can wake up with a sore throat that doesn't become anything. You can wake up with a headache. You can wake up with um, aches and pains in your body that are something or aren't something. We shift physically and we can fluctuate physically. And the same is true with our own mental, emotional health. I mean, overall, you would hope for uh, a great stability, but things can move. And you could be seemingly fine one month and then things change and the next month you're not. Mm. So what is some other terminology that you've thought through or that could help us to better understand this? Or does it come back to the fitness sort of picture? Well, it comes back to understanding. Let's look at mind health. It comes back to, to fitness. It comes back to let's examine what causes flourishing or thriving. Let's come back to language around resilience and prevention. One of the difficulties is that in in the good things that are happening in naming, identifying, and working on mental health in this country, there there is a lot of bottom of the cliff focus and a lot of how do we just get through or manage. And that is incredibly important. But what I haven't noticed so much of that we need to pick up more of is building the language around prevention, around resilience, around uh, thriving and flourishing, so that hopefully as we do so, it also reduces the number of people who are finding themselves at the bottom of the cliff or Mm. the number of people who are finding themselves caught in some form of mental illness. Mm. It's helpful, I think, to think in these ways. And I I imagine also pictures are helpful because I interviewed um, Dr. John Fargo, who you may or may not know, but he he, he's centered in on organizational resilience mm, mm. and he works with resilient organizations. And basically the picture he gave during our interview was the idea of somebody is in the ocean and waves are crashing and it looks like they're struggling. And that's one picture. And then somebody's in the ocean, waves are crashing and they've got a surfboard mm. and they are harnessing the difficulty, the pain, the, you know, the, the wave is coming, it's about to hit me and they're gliding and riding it into the shore. Mm. And I think that type of imagery is yeah, quite helpful as good. well if you very think good. about resilience, for example. So. Mm. Well, and that's right. It's Sometimes when people talk about resilience, it, the problem there is it also has a couple of meanings. One meaning is that your ability to bounce back when you're knocked down. But there's also another side to it, which is your ability to stand and not get knocked down in the first place. Mm. And what it... What you're talking about with the surfboard is also the ability to not allow the external factors to dictate how you will be, but to harness the external factors and the the pressure, the difficulty of those external factors so that they actually serve you rather than work against you. Mm. So many of us listening, and I'm including myself here, are parents with young children (laughs) who are growing up in our current culture, our environment. I'm just thinking through for them, how do we equip them so that they can be the surfers riding the waves Mm. rather than struggling with whatever it is that they're facing? 
Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just curious for your thoughts on that, because whether there are our children or nephews or nieces or people that we know, you know, I think those of us who are um, older have a responsibility in some ways to help guide the next generation. Do you have any thoughts to share about that? Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a number of things we could look at. One key thing is is to help our children to make sense of the world that they see. So if they are seeing the wind and the waves, are they seeing something that enables them to surf or are they seeing something that is threatening? And what I often find is that what's true for all of us is the way I put it is that we're, we're born into this world with six deep needs, you know, a need for significance, a need for innocence, a need for agency and progress and security and belonging. And we look out into the external world to, to answer the question such as, am I significant? Am I innocent or under shame? Am I, do I have any agency or power or ability to influence and so on in this world? And, and it's our, our conclusions to that that either leave me with a sense of stability inside, security inside, or it leaves me with, in a place of insecurity or a lack of confidence. And so it's helping our children to be able to interpret what they encounter, that there are things that they can do in this world that is their work. You know, they produce a, a good assignment. They paint a lovely picture. Mm. And to know that their, their work, so to speak, and their worth are two separate things mm. so that they are significant valuable and worthy regardless of whatever they're able to produce that there are times when they will be at fault and they will make mistakes but who they are as a person isn't faulty mm. that there are things that may frustrate them or limit them but just because there's a problem it doesn't mean they're powerless mm. there may be ways of thinking how can we get through this so it's it's working with our children to discover in many ways what are they concluding about the difficulties and the adversities that they're facing and helping them to experience it and and feel their emotions with it but not formulate an unhelpful conclusion from it mm that gives them the, the wrong sense of themselves or the world or others. So I think as parents, if, if, we're, if we're discovering for our, with our children as to what they found to be a high or a low, if we're discovering with our children what they found to be um, a, an adverse experience, if we're working with our children to help them to see it well. I recently wrote a children's book called There's a Happy Moon in My Side, which also has some, some techniques for parents and caregivers. But one of the key patterns in the book that I also encourage parents to use is, is empathy, perspective, action. Hear your child on whatever they're going through and give them empathy and affirmation for them. Then help them to encounter a reassuring perspective, a better perspective, and then find an action that's going to be constructive and beneficial to them. Mm. And so if we can put that into practice as we're talking with our children, listening with our, our children and discovering what they're, what they're taking from any given situation and use empathy, perspective and action, it can help to, to strengthen the child in their own understanding. Mm. I found it helpful recently because my, my children have been coming home and they've been talking about concepts like growth mindset 
versus fixed mindset, which certainly I think we're of similar age. That was definitely not a part of my mm-hmm. education and this sort of fundamentally uh, sound idea that you're on a growing curve, you know, absolutely. I can't do it yet, you know, and adding that yet at the end means that it just changes your whole framing of whether it's a mass problem or an essay or a, or you can't surf or whatever it is, that it's a different approach. And I think that's been something that I've, as a parent, it's been easier for me to echo back to them, you know, like, well, don't give up, you know, you you can't do it yet, but remember gross mindset. That's been quite helpful, I think. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that we did with our children and I'd also recommend to others is when they encounter something that seems like a problem that they feel powerless over, Mm. language of I haven't done this yet or I can't master it yet can be very helpful. The, The other thing can be showing them how do they take steps to master it when the steps they've taken so far haven't worked or aren't working yet? Mm-hmm. And so I would talk with children about building and strengthening their perseverance muscle, so building different muscle groups. And the other thing is is helping the child to break things down into much smaller steps. Sometimes I'll say to people, you need to break that down into a ridiculously small step so that it's far more easy, easy to, to conquer, to, to master, to the one little steps at a time. Because if you try to master the, the big steps, all you'll do is get frustrated. Mm. So certainly the language can be helpful and bringing alongside it some, some tools to help them to, to navigate that. Mm. And I think as well, I've learned recently, rather than praising the results, for example, mm you got a a good mark, 18 out of 20 for this essay, Um, rather than praising that, praising the effort that went into the project or whatever it is, because ultimately what you want them to learn is hard work, perseverance, you know, Mm. effort, that that's what's valued rather than you got 18 out of 20, which frankly we're going to forget about. Mm. But in the long term in your life, the hard work and the resilience and the effort that you put in, that's what you're learning for later on absolutely and alongside that 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 you are valuable to us and that you are worthy and Mm. that you are special whether you got 18 out of 20 or you got two out of 20 yeah that that what you've achieved we can say wow look at that achievement that's great but we've always loved you you're Mm. always great and so that is the child receiving uh praise and affirmation for who they are when nothing else is really being done. Mm. One of the things that I find is that for all of us, and, and certainly when we start out with children, is we look for what will get us um, a sense of significance, value, worth, or whatever. And whatever whatever seems to get the big people, the adults, their parents' attention, we'll keep doing that. So if mum is so pleased with me because I've always tidied my room and that's the only time she notices me, if dad is excited and buys me an ice cream because I've just got um, 18 out of 20 (laughs) and that's the only time dad really shows interest, children learn very quickly what gets them their food source, their food source of significance and well-being or value. And so they get programmed to keep going back to that. So of course later in life, if they're not getting the the achievements, the rewards, the accolades, 
then they feel like they're nothing. They feel mm. like they're only as good as their next um, achievement. Right. Rather than realizing, no, you carry your sense of value and worth inside of you regardless of what happens, that this is all about what you do. It's never been about who you are. Mm. Which is, so what we're really talking about is the more fundamental point than the things that we've been mentioning. You've got to get that foundation right which yeah. is you are valuable as mm. you are. Yeah. And then the other things that happen, like we'll talk about it, but fundamentally you're accepted and loved mm. as a foundation. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. And as parents, one of the questions we can ask ourselves is uh, what, what gets our attention for the child? Right. Is it when the child is having a wobbly and, um, and losing it? Is it when a child is in trouble? Is it when a child has produced great results? As far as our children are concerned, what gets our attention? Because mm. it's our attention that also communicates value. And if that only happens periodically or around certain things, then the child can become conditioned to believe that's what I need in order to be special, significant love. Mm. No, that's really good. Well, I think the parents listening will have gleaned some information there. And what we can do is we'll put links in the show notes so we can link sure. over to your book and different resources there. Can I ask it taking us in a different direction now? Sure. But when you get a client coming in and, you know, you're about to have the first counseling session, does it? what sort of things do you think it's important to know as a counselor and i'm particularly interested in a topic that my wife wants me to ask you about <laughs> which is birth order like is do you think that that becomes important as something that you want to know like are you firstborn secondborn thirdborn or whatever or is it just a peripheral thing that isn't that important that is just part of the conversation i'm just really curious about sure, that sure curious for <laughs> Because for my wife, um, <laughs> for me, that's that's inconsequential mm -hmm. because birth order, even if we said it had a significant impact on a child's understanding mm -hmm. and therefore the way that they relate. What I'm more interested in is not so much the birth order, but what's the impact in their understanding? What's what has come about from their, their perception of themselves or for others in the world? Because some people can be a middle child and they can follow very much middle child ways of being. And that's, that's interesting to know. But the, the question is, so what impact is that actually having on the person? You see, if, it's, if things are based purely around birth order or a personality type, if mm. you say, mm. then in many ways that communicates that this is something that's fixed right and therefore we can't necessarily change it so mm. we just have to learn how to cope with you because you're a middle child right whereas and it takes away the the ability of the person to have change totally. as a possibility because totally. i am what i am and I, I, i'm firstborn and therefore it's this, this way or the second be. or whatever yeah, yeah. whereas no, it's not so much the fact that you're firstborn, but it's understanding that as a firstborn, you may perceive the world in a certain way and you may adopt certain understandings and you may have experienced certain emotions that are informing you. Mm. And it's it's what you are believing deeply uh, underneath your conscious mind, what you are 
are primed to feel in response, what you are needing and what those of those needs feel like they are certain inside of you and which ones feel like they have a question mark over it because of whatever's happened externally. That's what I'm interested in because when I can understand that and I can change or help a person to change those key dynamics inside of them, now we can find freedom that they didn't have before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. You mentioned there the conscious mind and sort of the deeper parts mm. to it. Mm. How do you get there? How do you how do you have conversations about that? So I remember hearing many years ago that in order to find out the true cause of something, you have to ask why five times. And in one regard, it's it's about peeling back the layers to find out what's what's beneath that. So there are different frameworks and different models of understanding uh, human development and behavior. And following some of these, we would know that if we peel back our, our, the way that we behave, we might come down to what we feel. And when we peel back what we feel, we may come down to what we're telling ourselves. And when we peel back what we're telling ourselves, we may come down to, to what we're be- believing deeply. And in one of the ways that I find that we can peel back the, the layers is, is keep asking a kind of why question. So help me understand what what was so bad about that for you? Or, or why was that an issue for you? Or when you encountered that, what was the meaning that you took from that? Mm. And it's often when we ask those kinds of questions that people have the answer, but they it's below the surface that they have to think about. Mm. And sometimes the answer that they reveal is they may say, gosh, this sounds silly, or I can't believe I'm saying this. And that's because it's a, a belief that's got embedded at a very deep level, probably from a young age. And so it still sounds very young. It can still sound very immature. And it's not that the person is immature. Mm. It's just that their, their logical, rational, cognitive self seems to be at odds with what's actually going on inside of them and what they're, they're genuinely feeling or, or believing. And this is why people get stuck, because they know logically what the right answer is here. But I fe- don't feel it. I feel different. I feel stuck. I feel that I still am jealous, envious of, that I want this attention, that I want people to recognize me. And when I say it, that sounds bad. Well, it's not, it doesn't sound bad. It just sounds like that's what's there. Mm-hmm. So let's have a look at what's there. So it's asking some key questions to peel back the layer and reveal what's what's genuinely inside of a person and having them know that whatever they reveal, you're in a, a room with someone else who will completely accept you. So there's absolutely no judgment. They just is what there is so let's work on what is Mm. it's interesting to think of that peeling back and you know the onion with many rings and Mm. and as you get more it gets deeper and deeper Mm. yeah and i imagine then if people are willing to go there then you can start helping to trace back well what's the origin of that feeling of jealousy or anger or whatever it is that yep. has resulted. Yeah, in. sometimes we will uh, we will go back in order to to find out the root cause in order for the person to realize that the reason why I'm getting angry with my spouse or I'm I'm withdrawing from the way my boss is being isn't actually about them and what's going on with them even if they're behaving in an unhelpful way but it it, it comes from another time that to help a person realize ah oh, 
this is actually part of a conditioning that my brain is giving me, that's giving me this response. Mm. Other times we don't necessarily need to go back at all. We can we can help a person move forward. Because one of the things that um, I will pretty much always ask that I'm always interested in is what I refer to as their preferred future. You've come and you want to share this big story with me and I want to hear your big story. But I'm also interested in, so if... We could wave a magic wand if God could do a miracle, if the issue could be fully gone. Tell me about the world. Tell me about what would be different if you were now living your life going, oh, this feels so much better. I love this space I'm in. What does that look like for you compared to now? So I'll always want to have a preferred future focus so that we know where we're trying to get to. Then we can look at and what's preventing you from getting there. Mm. No, that's really good. Um, and just thinking, you've mentioned a couple times, sort of, I, I guess the idea would be that spirituality or that there's different levels of our world. Mm-hmm. Um, to what extent do you think that's a part of conversations um, today? Because in the West, I think we've kind of bought into this idea that if you get a great car and a house and, you know, you've got mm-hmm. a good job, that that you've made it, you know, that that's, that there's these conceptions of what you're aiming for, which in many ways, you know, we're talking about the classics. It kind of is leaving aside centuries and thousands of years of tradition that there's more to life than just accumulating more wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Just in the sense of, is there a development in the West around the side of the spiritual? Yeah, I think there there absolutely is, and I think it's been it's been slowly building for a number of decades, as people recognise that when we reduce this world to a purely materialistic world, that it it is only what I see and what I can feel, mm. that that feels very devoid of meaning mm. and substance and replenishing. And so there's certainly been an increase in spirituality and interest in spiritual things, often more generalized spirituality, uh, connecting with nature, understanding different rhythms of life, uh, Things that replenish the soul, that they will say. And so I think that's been on the increase. I think certainly um, Māori uh, spirituality and culture has been very helpful in this as well. There's a there's a model of well-being um, that was developed by Sir Mason Jury called Te Whare Tapafa, which talks about the four walls of the whare. And one is our relational, one is our psychological, one is our physical, and then the fourth one is our spiritual side. Hmm. And so bringing that into general uh, conversation and therapeutic approach has meant that the spiritual has become far more included and, uh, and, and seen as a resource rather than just something that's left to those religious sorts. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely something I'm seeing, particularly as you mentioned, sort of the concepts of Te Ao Māori as well, you know, that mm. there's more to this life than just what, what can be seen. And in terms of what's keeping you busy now and um, with mind health and things, um, what are you involved in and what projects have you got on the go? So there's a number of things that we're doing where we're working as well-being in workplaces and helping workplaces increase the well-being of their staff. So we talk about uh, keeping your people working well. That's uh, well enough to work, working well at work and working well with others at work. 
And certainly the Mental Health Foundation has highlighted just how important an area it is for well-being in the workplace. And they've also been able to identify that for every dollar invested in well-being, organizations are receiving a fourfold return. So $1 produces $4 in return, which is, mm. is wonderful. So it comes back to the understanding that when you look after the product capacity of your people, then they produce more rather than just trying to get them to produce more. Yeah. So we're working in that area and helping to develop uh, well-being in the workplace through presentations, workshops, training, skill set giving, as well as providing counselling and coaching on the outside. Mm-hmm. We are also working in schools as primary schools are crying out for uh, counsellors that's that's about to change with and we'll inter- be interested to see what effect it has next year when the government will says it's going to be funding uh, counselors in primary schools but currently we're we're working with that initiative we're also working alongside churches to supervise their pastoral care systems to train their people to build resilience into their their key leaders and to develop the the pastoral counseling and 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 pastoral care skills of their people so they can help increase the well-being within the church setting as well and there's also a number of uh, books that I'm working on to help increase the well-being of people generally. So we talk about mind health for work, we talk about mind health for me, mind health for kids, and mind health for charities and churches. So those those sort of four key areas that we're working on. And so there's one book, uh, the first in the five of the mind health series that's come out, and um, I've got to work on the next four to get them out, uh, hopefully by early next year. Great. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll link into your website, and I'm sure there's resources there that people can find. And yeah, but I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to hear about your life. I always love to hear those early years mm. and then trying to work with somebody to trace through how did you get to what you do today. But I've really enjoyed hearing about um, what you're up to and also just our conversation around parents, you know, and, and the role that we can play with our children. And mm. in a way, what you're saying, you know, that foundational point that you're accepted, mm. that's kind of applicable throughout society, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> you know, very much so. If that was the way that we approach people. I often actually think um, if, you, if you see somebody that you don't get on with, you know, try to picture them as a three-year-old or a four-year-old, you know, and all of a sudden it changes your own perception and your framing of this difficult, hard-to-get-on-with person. It, it changes yet that perception. So, yeah. Um, yeah, but thank you for all the different thoughts that you've shared with us today. It's been really helpful. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Cool. Thank you. Was there anything else that you wanted to cover? Or that, that was pretty good. That's good. The the thing I didn't mention is there are resources for parents on our website, and we, which build on uh, there's Abby Moon in my side, and there's also a download for parents for lockdown and beyond. So around oh, okay. this COVID time, there's some additional resources that they may find helpful. Okay. As well. Well, well, we'll we'll put the link in the show notes, mm. and then people can we can put a description. Yeah. People yeah. can find. Sounds it. good. Cool. Thank you. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Richard. I know for me there were several things that stood out, and I loved his emphasis on taking care of our mental health just the way we would our physical health. 
If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog. And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. Until next time!